over the last couple of weeks, um, uh, we've been, uh, God's just been doing something in the Fellowships Network. Um, for those of you who are not aware, um, we have, we're part of a network of churches called the Fellowships Network. Fellowship Oshawa um, is, uh, we were sent out of Fellowship Pickering, so Fellowship Pickering uh, was the first one, and then they, they helped launch Rouge Park, Fellowship Rouge Park, and then they helped launch us, Fellowship Oshawa, and we're going to be launching Fellowship Bowmanville. Uh, later on this year uh, in the fall, and we've got a couple of other church planters who are now in our residency, and so we're, we, we want to multiply churches and disciples, right, uh, so that Durham uh, is transformed, not just uh, here in Oshawa, and um, we've just sensed that God is calling us, starting with the leadership, starting with the pastors of the churches, to um, just to uh, a level of commitment, I guess, for lack of a better word, to him. Uh, that maybe we've never been to before. Uh, we're just sensing a kind of a desperation and a hunger uh, for God um, and just a, a very keen sense of awareness of how desperately we need Him. And, and I know um, some of you may have heard about it, some of you may have not, but uh, basically last Sunday, uh, God uh, really showed up in, in, in a powerful way at Fellowship Pickering uh, during their time of worship. Um, and I heard from multiple people that they said, I don't know how to describe it except that God showed up. Um, God, you know, God's presence was, was there in a, in a unique way. Um, you know, now God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent, but sometimes his manifest presence, he chooses to, his imminent presence, uh, he chooses to reveal that to us, right? And to uh, kind of open our eyes to that and, uh, to visit us. And, and that happened last Sunday. And, um, you know, we'll talk about in a, in a second what happens when God shows up. It's not that you know, we throw a party, usually what happens is we're on our faces in repentance. That's what happens when God shows up. And uh, that's what happened uh, this past Sunday. Uh, and so, you know, I've just been thinking about, you know, Matt has, Matt Hess is the pastor, Fellowship Pickering. He's such, such an incredible example. You know, I, he, would, uh, he would not want me to say this, but um, I don't know if any of you have ever uh, like thought about this. I know there are people that I that I look up to, right? Like heroes of mine, and especially heroes of the faith. And uh, maybe they're still alive, or maybe they've been long dead. You know, Charles Spurgeon is is one, and you know John Wesley. Just these guys, and they, I just they were like giants, right? Like giants in the faith. And and sometimes I would wonder. I wonder what it would be like to just to have like been discipled that by that guy, to have been around him. And and the thought really struck me this week that um, man, God is just blessed me because I really feel like, like maybe a lot of people around the world don't know Matt Hess's name, but I feel like I get to walk side by side with a man who's a giant. And that's Matt Hess. Like I really do. Uh, he just, he just sets the standard and calls all of us to a deeper level of commitment uh, to the Lord. And he, and he, and he doesn't talk about it. He does it. And, um, and I think that God has, has put him in this place as the, leader, as the head of this network for a reason. Me and Jen, since we came here, we believed that God wants to bring revival to the Durham region. We, we really do. We believe that South Oshawa is going to be a part of it because South Oshawa is the last place the world would think the revival would start, right? Because it's the schwa. But it's the first place, if any of us who've read our Bibles, we know, well, God loves to start working in places like the schwa, right? Um, when I, a couple of years, I became a Christian about eight years ago uh, when I was 24. 
And a couple of years after I uh, became a Christian, I, I remember uh, sitting, I remember where I was, and I, I remember, uh, you know, sitting in my house. I was still a bachelor at the time. I was on my own, and, and I was praying, and I just remember this uh, keen sense of awareness coming upon me, knowing exactly what I wanted with my life. And I remember praying and telling God, God, the only thing that, that I want people to ever, like, when people think about me after I die, if they do... <laughs> But when people think about me, the people who knew me well, the one thing I want them to think about when they think about me is that he walked closely with God. That's it. I don't care about anything else. I don't, want, I, I, I don't care how much success I have in the eyes of the world. I don't care about any of that stuff. I want people, when they think about me, they just think that's a guy who desperately clung to Jesus Christ his entire life. And I, I know that's been my uh, desire since I was young, and yet I've persistently allowed some things to continue in my life that, I, that have hindered what I said I wanted more than anything. We had a, a prayer meeting this past Tuesday um, with some pastors from the east side, and, and we spent just a lot of time in prayer, and God just, um, just showed me some stuff in my life, just some, some pride specifically, um, some things that just weren't good. Things that um, I've just kind of, you know, little things, you know, like I've been doing, I've been, I've been doing, you know, like I'm not doing any big sins, right? I'm not, like uh, from an outside perspective, like I'm walking a pretty pure life, right? And, and God just showed me um, this week just how, how far I fall short <laughs> of his glory. Um, it's so easy to coast I think when you compare yourself to other people or when you compare yourself to the church culture around you, right? I think that we're all suffering from the same disease together in North America. Like I'd say, Big C Church as a whole. I'm not saying this you know, applies to every single person and every single church, but I'm saying as a whole, I think we're all suffering from the same disease, and that disease is that we're all comparing ourselves to one another, and we've decided, well, I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. And here's the reality, like, I know, guys, I know that if, like, we were to, if, you know, if God were to line all of us up and, and, like, compare, you know, and we were to each compare how much time we spend in prayer, right, and in reading our Bible, I'd probably stack up pretty well against you guys. And you know what that means before God? Nothing. Nothing. It absolutely means nothing in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I am a sinner, <laughs> who desperately needs Jesus Christ every second of every single day. My righteous deeds, like we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at, are like filthy rags. I, I'm tired of playing games with, with sin. Uh, I'm ashamed at my, my lack of desire for Christ. And I know that might sound funny to some of you because you might think of me as a very passionate person, and I am. But I know that there have been times, many times, over the last eight years where I knew that the Holy Spirit was just beckoning me and calling me to come and just spend time with him and pray with him. And I chose to watch Netflix for three hours instead of spend time with my creator. I know that there have been many times where I have said no to the promptings in the Holy, of the Holy Spirit when I knew he was saying, hey, go pray for this person or hey, go share the gospel with this person. And, I, and I've said no, and I've chosen to 
protect my own reputation or, or I've chosen to give in to the fear of man instead of trusting God. I've done that over and over and over again. I know that, there, that so many times in the past eight years, there's been an unwillingness in my life to lay down the little things that I know that God has called me to lay down, things that aren't necessarily sinful, but things that are getting in the way and impeding and hindering intimacy with Jesus. And I knew God was calling me to lay those things down, and I put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off, and I've said no. And I'm just to a point, like, uh, just to kind of give you guys a glimpse into where I'm at personally right now, I'm to a point where I'm not going to say no to Jesus anymore. I'm tired of playing games with sin. I don't want anything more than Jesus. Everything that hinders fellowship with Jesus Christ right now, I want gone. And I, and I want, I've been praying and I've been asking the Holy Spirit to do a search and destroy mission for sin in my heart. I'm tired of powerless Christianity. I'm tired of powerless Christianity. I want to walk with God step for step. When I look at the church in North America, and, I, and, and, and we compare it to the book of Acts, or we compare it to the church during the Great Awakening or the, the Welsh Revival, there's, there's hardly any comparison. And again, we're all suffering from the same disease. It's like that analogy I, I used last week that C.S. Lewis said, it's like we're, we're like a kid in the slums who's content playing with a mud pie because we don't know what it's like to have a holiday at sea. So we just think this is as good as it gets. And, and what, I, what I know for a fact because I read it in my Bible is that there's so much more that God has for us. And, and I think God's calling us to walk in it. I know He's calling me to walk in it. We need revival. But revival starts by, by, by looking at yourself. Revival always starts with personal revival. So as the pastor, as your pastor, it has to start with me. And then it has to start with us as a church. We can't keep looking at the world around us and looking at all our lost neighbors and going, boy, God really needs to be, bring revival on them because they sure are lost. No, God needs to bring, bring revival on us because we're asleep. We need to be revived. What is revival? Let me kind of, let's define revival real quick. Uh, so from, from time to time, uh, God's people, we'll see it in the life of Israel, you see it in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and you see it throughout church history, God's people drift into a kind of lifelessness and, and lethargy and backsliding and indifference, powerlessness. And revival is when God sovereignly awakens his people in a particular place at a particular time to that reality. They, they see that. They see something is wrong, and, and then God stirs their heart to repent and to cry out to him, and then God pours his spirit out afresh upon them. That's revival. And I believe that is what God is stirring on the east end of the GTA. And it's what's being expressed in Isaiah chapter 63 and 64. That's going to be our, our passage this morning. Let me just read this. It's going to be on the screen behind me. If you want, you can follow along uh, with a Bible. There's Bibles on the tables in front of you. We're going to start in Isaiah 63, 15. And we're going to go through chapter 64, verse 
8. To give you some context, Israel has abandoned the Lord. Uh, they've been sent into exile. Uh, they're at a time right now where they've fallen uh, far away from God. Their worship is stale. It's based on tradition. Their enemies are prevailing against them. And this is the situation they find themselves in. So let's start to read. Here's the word of God. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been for a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. So what's happening here is in the first five verses, 63, 15 to 19, Israel is recognizing that they're in a bad place spiritually. They're recognizing that, that things are not good. They're in dire straits. Just look at some of these phrases. They, they say, they, they cry out to the Lord, where are your zeal and your might? So there's a lack of God's presence and power amongst the community, amongst God's people. Where are your zeal and your might? Then they, they go on to say, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. So what, what they're saying there is that, that they've strayed so far from God that they don't even resemble God's people anymore. If Abraham were to show up, Abraham wouldn't even recognize them as his descendants. That's how far they've drifted from God. They say, why, in verse 17, why do you make us wander from your ways so that we fear you not? Their hearts have been hardened. They've, they've wandered far from God. They don't fear him anymore. In verse 19, the, the culmination says that we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Does this not resemble us? I mean, do, do, do you see yourself in here? Do you see us in this passage? 
where are your zeal and your might? I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I just, I was praying, I'm so tired of powerless evangelism. You know that 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity. Not. But one of power and love and self-control. And yet, we continually go out in timidity. timidity. We have timid evangelism every time we go out. Why is that when God says, I have not given you a spirit of fear and timidity? You know, I was thinking... It's amazing because we live in a place where it is legal to share the gospel. We're protected by law from people physically harming us for sharing the gospel. Like, nobody is allowed to just, like, you know, come up and start beating you with a baseball bat because you're sharing the gospel. That happens in other countries. That's not allowed to happen here. We're protected by law, and yet the Barna Group found that 98% of Christians don't do it. 98% of us don't do it, and yet we're protected by law. And then you go to the Middle East, and there are Christians who are sharing the gospel boldly at the risk of their life. Why is that? Why is it that we can go to the Middle East and see underground churches that are sharing the gospel, and then it's totally legal here, and most of us don't do it at all? Why is that? It's because they are walking in the power of the Spirit, and we are not. That's why. That's the difference. The devil has done a number on us. We are bound in the fear of man. God set us free this morning from the fear of man. I'm tired of powerless prayer. I'm tired of being bored when I read the Bible. If we are bored, if I, you know, it hit me, this, the thought hit me. If I'm bored when I read the Bible, the problem is not the Bible. The problem is me. It is not God's fault. God is not boring. Most certainly not boring. We're about to talk in just a second about who God is. And one thing that God is not is boring. Verse 17 really jumped out at me. Isaiah says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? So many Christians don't fear the Lord. There's no fear of sin. There's no urgency to be holy. God will forgive me. It's not that big of a deal. That's the prevailing attitude across much of Christendom. This verse, verse 17, says that that attitude is God's judgment on a stubborn people. Do you see that? It says, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we don't fear you? So many people think that they're going to coast into heaven. The only direction we will coast is towards hell. Nobody coasts into heaven. We need revival to wake us up to this reality. There are millions and millions of professing Christians that are asleep. That's what revival is. That's why we need revival desperately in North America. Verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. So it's not just that we have often, it's not just that we often have like powerless evangelism or prayer or still worship, it's that we're okay with it. It's like we've accepted that as the new normal. We've been this way for so long that we we don't even know that there's something better. But church, can I remind you this morning that God has not changed? He hasn't changed. He's not different. The God that, that we read about in our Bible is exactly the same today as he was back then. 
He's still as mighty to save today as he was back then. He still can perform miracles today like he does in the Bible. He still answers prayer today like he does in the Word. He hasn't changed. And yet I think we buy into this lie that like somehow God's different today and that this was for another time, that the stories we read in here, were, were that was for another place and another time, almost like a fantasy novel. The Bible is not a fantasy novel. So what will bring revival? Well, Isaiah knows that it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. God brings revival. Look at verse 1 of chapter 64. What's the response? When they they recognize things are not good spiritually, his response, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. See, revival starts when we get desperate. I love the earnest desire. My favorite word in that verse is, oh. There's this this desire, this passion, this this burning inside of Isaiah's chest. Lord, we need you. All this week, I've just felt that in my chest. I I was reminded of Paul in Galatians chapter 4, and he he was writing to the church in Galatia. And they were, they were having some struggles. There were some false teachers and things like that. And he said, I feel as if I'm going through the pains of childbirth for you until Christ is fully formed in you. And I honestly know how that feels. Like I want so badly for you guys to only want Jesus Christ. I want so badly for you to, to see him and to recognize that there's nothing else in this life worth pursuing. Nothing. He is worthy of all of your praise. He is worthy of giving up everything for. And you'll never regret it. Nothing that you ever give up for Jesus will ever be a regret. You are not going to be on your deathbed and go, boy, I wish I wouldn't have given up so much time for Jesus. Boy, I wish I wouldn't have given up so much money towards missions. Boy, I wish I wouldn't have given over so many idols for Jesus. You'll never say that. And I want you to see it, but I can't make you see it. The Spirit of God has to come and do that. That's been my prayer heading into this morning. So what I want to do is I just want to talk about God for the rest of the time that we have together. I'm just going to, I just want to read you who God is from the Scriptures. And as I do this, I want you, maybe even right now, I want you to pray to yourself, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Ask God to do this in you for the rest of our time together. Here's what it says. David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Even right now, close your eyes and pray this. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Allow the Spirit of God to search you this morning. If you don't want another thing in your life to keep you from Christ, then pray that prayer. As I, uh, you know, I've realized, and, and the thought hit me this week, guys, that if I don't do this, if I don't just allow Jesus to have access to every single part of my life, if I don't fully surrender to him, I might as well pack my bags and go back home to Texas because there's no point in me being here. Like, if I don't give everything to him, to Christ, like, I'm, I'm helpless without him. I cannot do anything for this city. I can't do anything for you guys without him. 
We desperately need him. So let's remember who God is and that he's worthy of all of our worship. That's what Isaiah does in verse 4. He says, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Well, who is this God who acts for those who wait for him? First of all, God is the creator. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The next time you walk outside and you look up into the sky and you see a star and you realize that that star is hundreds or thousands or even millions of times bigger than our planet. Think about the fact that God spoke and it came into being like that. He is the creator. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, God says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And all these things came to be because of me, declares the Lord. God is king. God is creator and God is king. First Chronicles 29 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Everything belongs to God. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, put it like this. He said, there is not one square inch in all the universe over which the Lord Jesus Christ does not cry out, mine. Everything belongs to him. Your body belongs to God. I hear people say all the time, well, it's, it's my body, and so it's nobody else's business what, what I do with it. Wrong. It's God's business what you do with your body. Your body belongs to him. Your money belongs to him. Your house, your possessions belong to him. He has given all of these things to you. Everything belongs to him. We have no right to decide, like, like Christ, especially Christians, like guys, if, if, if Jesus is our king, I don't get to decide what I do with my free time. Christ decides what I do with it. I don't decide what I do with my money. He decides what I do with my money. I don't decide where I'm going to go on vacation or if I'm going to take this new job. He decides. He is my king. God is creator and he's king. God is majestic. Psalm 104, the earth trembles at his glance. The mountains smoke at his touch. God has no limits. His greatness is unsurpassed. His power is unmatched. He is not hindered by time or space. He stands outside of time and space. He, he transcends it. Isaiah 40, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's omnipotent. That means his power is endless. He's omnipresent. That means there is nowhere that you can go to get away from his presence. He is everywhere at all times, fully and completely. He's omniscient. There's nothing that he doesn't know. He established everything from before the foundation of the world. God is righteous and true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of the Lord proves true. Everything that he says proves true. Not a single word is false. Psalm 97, 2 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. 
the very foundation of who he is, is righteousness. That means that, that everything that God is do, does is right. God does not make mistakes. He never does wrong. He created you exactly how he wants you to be. He puts you in exactly the life situation that he wanted you to be in. He is the rightful judge because righteousness is the foundation of his throne. And as a righteous judge, we know that he is going to right every single wrong at judgment day. God is holy. He's three times holy. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. The elders fall before the lamb who is seated on the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness means that there is nothing and no one like God. There's nothing that we can compare him to. That's what Isaiah communicates in Isaiah 40 when he, when, when he says, To whom will you compare God? Or what image will you find to resemble him? There is no image that we can find to resemble him. Even to begin to try to explain God, I can only tell you what he's like. I, I have no adequate words to fully communicate to you who God is. God is all-knowing and wise. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable are His ways. His ways can't be questioned. He doesn't make mistakes. His wisdom is limitless. His hot thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. His wisdom is perfectly seen in the gospel. It's in the gospel where, where God in his wisdom de designed a plan to where perfect justice and perfect mercy would meet. How can a just God who must punish sin, pardon guilty sinners, look to the cross? At the cross, God poured out his justice towards sin on his one and only son, demonstrating his endless love and mercy towards sinners. Justice and mercy both met at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the fact that God is merciful and gracious. You know, I love the fact that when Moses cried out to God, God, show me your glory. And God brought Moses up onto the mount and he hid him behind the cleft of the rock. And, and out of all the things that God could have said to Moses to describe to Moses who he is, listen to what God says as he passes by Moses. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Don't let the weight of this pass you by. This, we've just been talking about how powerful he is, how holy he is, how mighty he is, how awesome he is, about how frankly we should be trembling before his presence right now. And all of that is true. And yet, overriding all of that, God chooses to self-reveal himself to us in this way by telling us, Yes, but I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I love you. I want you to turn from me. I do not want to pour my anger out on you. I will pour it out on my son instead. Come to me. The invitation is open to all. 
The gospel is for sinners. Christ died for you. Psalm 104, 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins. That's amazing. That's amazing that God does not give us what we deserve every single day. Did you know that right now, sitting in this chair, you are not getting what you deserve from God because you're still breathing? God has blessed us beyond measure. God is love. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, anybody, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. You could spend an entire week just meditating on that phrase. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says, The measure of love is how much it gives. And the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to become human and to die for our sins and so to become the one mediator who can bring us to God. If the measure of love is how much it gives, then we can't measure God's love because the son is perfect. And that's who he gave. Lastly, not lastly, but the last one that I'm going to tell you. God is faithful and unchanging. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of God's promises are a yes and amen in Christ Jesus, church. You can take it to the bank that if God has said he will do it, he will do it. And we do not have to doubt him. That means that that the promise that comes along with the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I'll be with you always, he means it. So he means that we can really go out and, and not fear man. And we can preach the gospel. And his power will be with us. How are you going to respond to that God this morning? There's only one right way. It's repentance and surrender. It's what Isaiah does. Look at verse 6. Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Church, I'm just going to be real with you. I don't care if you're the squeakiest clean, Sunday school attending, church going person in all of Canada. When you compare yourself to that God that we just talked about, filthy rags, polluted garments. Humble yourself before God this morning. When we come face to face with a holy God, humility is the result. Every impure motive, every hidden secret, every bad attitude, every unconfessed sin is made visible before him. He sees it all. He sees it all. Are you going to let him search your heart today? But this, this place of humility is the best place to possibly be. It's the best place we could possibly be. 
when we humble ourselves and, and we confess our sin and repent, God extends mercy. This is what has to happen if we want revival to start. Isaiah 57, 15 says it very clear. It says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit. That means repentant and humble. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So if we want to be revived, if we want revival, then we must be contrite in hearts and we must humble ourselves before a holy God. Because of the, and, and we can do this because of the cross. We can confess our sin to God without fear because we know that if we come to Him in the name of Jesus Christ, we will not be met with judgment but with grace. You can, you can confess everything to God this morning and out loud to your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning and you can know that you will not be met with judgment. You will receive grace. And it's in response to this undeserved grace of God that we surrender and we give God his rightful place as king in our lives. It's when you experience that undeserved grace that this attitude of total abandonment to God's will being done in our lives comes. And that's where verse 8 happens. But now, O Lord, you are our father and we are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Isaiah's like, okay, we're in the palm of your hand now. Just You're the potter and we're the clay. You do whatever you want to in my life. I'll go anywhere you call me to go. I'll do anything you call me to do. I'll give up whatever you call me to give up. Every single sin that hinders, that hinders intimacy with you, I want it gone. I don't want anything more than Jesus. I just want you, Father, to be the potter and just mold me exactly how you want me. That's the response that comes when we are met with the grace of God as we confess our sins before Him. How are you going to respond to the King of glory this morning? I pray that you will respond with humble confession and a decision to give Jesus every part of your life. And, and in this morning, I'm not taking anything for granted. I'm not assuming that anybody here is saved. I want each of you to search, to ask God to search your heart and, and to really think. As we're, what we're about to do is we're going to do some, some prayer together. Um, we're going to get together with our tables. So um, those of you who I talked to before, um, I'd like a facilitator um, in each group. And if there's only like two people at your table, or if you're not at a table, then you can, you know, people can turn around and get with people. And we're going to put some prompts on the screen behind us. And, and there's going to be some questions. And these, these questions are going to be uh, searching questions and probing questions, and they're designed to be. And if you will humble yourself underneath them and you will let God search you, then he can radically transform your life this morning. And I'm going to ask you guys to confess out loud sin to one another this morning. So we're going to put some prompts behind the screen. I'll go ahead and throw the first one up right now. Humility. 
We read that passage in Isaiah chapter 57. So here's some questions to consider. Are you quick to acknowledge and agree with God in confession when you have sinned? Next. Just go ahead and put all of them up there. Are you quick to admit to others when you are wrong? Do you talk more about the positive in other people or the negative in other people? Do you rejoice when others are praised and recognized and your accomplishments go unnoticed by other people? Are those things true in your life? Or do you have some things that you need to bring before God? I'll tell you what, that last one punched me in the face on Tuesday. It did. I realized, man, far too often, my response isn't to rejoice when other people get recognized and I don't, it's to be jealous. For real. Like I've found myself being jealous of other churches before, of other ministers before. That's evil. That's evil. That's from Satan. That is not from God. I had to bring that before God and repent and confess that out loud. So that's what I want us to do this, this morning. So we're going to have to get up and move. So let's go ahead and do that.